0: Welcome to our third episode on the Gospels. Jim, we're getting closer to Christmas. I'm assuming you've got all your decorations up, your giant (laughs) snowman in the garden and, and those sorts of things.
1: I take a minimalist approach to Christmas decorations. I have one small tree. It's about nine inches high, made of (laughs) enamel uh, with lights embedded into it. And so every year uh, in the week before Christmas, I take this thing out and plug it in. I mean, it's an exhausting process, but I think it's important to enter into the spirit of the season.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're doing exactly that. Well, I would say to our listeners, um, if you want to send Jim any (laughs) Christmas decorations, uh, (laughs) suggestions for what he could be doing over this Christmas period, that would be really... Appreciated it because we want to try and uh, improve, uh, improve his Christmas traditions. <laughs> um, and also, I actually wanted to add, Jim, something that I've, I've noticed in the last number of weeks is on Spotify, there's actually a feature where people can uh, respond to episodes now directly uh, on spotify there's a little kind of q a box and they can put oh, yes. their comments and feedback and questions so if you're a listener on spotify we'd really encourage you to use that if you're not a listener on spotify we'd also say uh, do send us an email to the equip project at gmail.com or get in touch for our instagram we love hearing from you um, so do uh, reach out to us with questions follow-ups and suggestions okay with all that said jim um we we'll get into the the kind of meat of this episode, we gave this season the title Battleground. And we did that because over the past two centuries, critics of Christianity have launched wave after wave of attacks on the historicity of the Gospels. The Gospels, in many ways, are Christianity's foundation documents because they introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. If we don't have an accurate record of what Jesus said and did, then the Christian faith reduces to what the Apostle Peter termed a cunningly devised fable. See, the stakes are high in this discussion, aren't they, Jim?
1: They are, but uh, look, I want to reassure our listeners that when we get to the end of this conversation, we'll see that there's nothing to worry about. Uh, Christianity has nothing to fear from careful scholarship, but we do object to shoddy scholarship based on prejudice and wild speculation.
0: We've called this episode The Quest for the Historical Jesus. At first glance, that probably makes no sense at all because the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us direct access to the historical Jesus. And yet, scores of books have been published over the years which use the terminology of a quest to
1: get to the Jesus behind the Gospels. So, what's all that about? Probably the best place to start is with a book that was published in 1993. It was called The Five Gospels What Did Jesus Really Say? The book was produced by a group of scholars called the Jesus Seminary, Uh, and it prints each of the four Gospels, plus another so-called Gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. And every statement made by Jesus is color-coded, okay? So red-colored words meant Jesus said something like this. Uh, Pink coloring meant Jesus probably said something like this. Gray implied Jesus did not say this, but the ideas are fairly close to Jesus' ideas. And black meant Jesus did not say this. It was added by later or different tradition, and the book hit the headlines because, according to the Jesus Seminary, less than twenty percent of Jesus' words were colored red or pink. In the entire Gospel of Mark, there is only one sentence attributed to the authentic Jesus: "Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's." Only fifteen sayings in the four Gospels were colored red, and they were all, you know, the, the sort of short, pithy sayings like "Turn the other cheek."
0: Again, and, and that sounds pretty concerning. Um, Who were these people,
1: and what exactly is the Jesus Seminary? The newspapers who reported the story claimed that the Jesus Seminary contained a broad range of world-class Bible scholars. But that is untrue. Um, Over half of its members uh, are from only three of the the, the most liberal seminaries in the world. That's Harvard, Claremont, and Vanderbilt. Uh, And only a handful of the names were well-known in academic circles. About a third of the group hadn't published a single peer-reviewed paper in the field. Um, and the two founders of the Jesus Seminary, are, one's called Robert Funk and the other John Dominic Crossan. Now, Crossan is quite open about his theological position. He denies the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. He says that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are fictions made up by the early church. And Funk is equally open about his agenda. He said that he wanted to liberate people from the theological tyranny of the orthodox view of Christ. Now, I know, Ollie, that that all sounds a bit like a, you know, a, an ad hominem attack, but it's important to counter the claim that the Jesus seminary represents the mainstream views of biblical scholars. They most certainly don't.
0: Okay, that's helpful. Uh, and I guess many of our listeners might be asking how anyone could arrive at the conclusion that less than 20% of the words of Christ as recorded in the Gospels are actually genuine. So so what arguments do these people use to, to kind of get to that place?
1: Okay, look, the, the basic idea is that there is a great ugly ditch between the authentic Jesus, the, the Jesus of history, and what is called the Christ of faith. So according to these critical scholars, the Gospels are the product of the early church. Uh, for mainly political reasons, the early church invented the Christ that we know. And so the job of the scholar is to sift through the Gospels, you know, a bit like an archaeologist who carefully chips away at different levels of an ancient structure until he gets to the rock bed of the authentic Jesus. Now, we've been talking about the quest for the historical Jesus. In actual fact, there have been three such quests. The first one began Way back at the end of the 18th century, it lasted for over 100 years, and it was entirely a product of the Enlightenment. So, the modernists scoffed at the idea of the supernatural. If there was a god, then he was some sort of absentee landlord, so the idea that he would intervene supernaturally was deemed to be ridiculous. It therefore followed that things like the virgin birth, all the miracles recorded in the Gospels, and the resurrection should all be excised so should all that talk about the second coming of Christ. It was claimed that all the theological claims made about Christ by the church in the early centuries were just elaborate fictions. So forget about Jesus being both human and divine. uh, Forget about his atoning death. All these were apparently accretions, which obscured the authentic Jesus from our view. What picture of Jesus does that leave us
0: with then? Uh, What was the, the result of this first quest for the historical Jesus?
1: Well, I said at the start that there was nothing for a faithful believer to be, to worry about with all this critical scholarship, and your question is now going to allow us to see why that is so. In the year 1906, a scholar called Albert Schweitzer published a review of the first quest, and he concluded that it had only served to create a Jesus in the researcher's own image. I came across a quote which I think explains the problem brilliantly. These men looked down into the well of history and only saw their own reflection. So the Jesus produced by the first quest, well, it turns out he was a 19th century liberal Protestant moralist. In other words, the authentic Jesus proposed by these scholars just so happened to fit snugly into the culture inhabited by the researchers. You said earlier that there have been three quests. Does that principle apply to to all of them then? It does. The second quest took place in the middle of the 20th century, and in many ways it was a reaction against the first one. But by the time it ended, the same results had been produced. This time, the authentic Jesus was a German existentialist. Once again, he had been domesticated, made to fit into the mould of contemporary culture. And the same thing has happened with the third quest, which is still going on. Now, the authentic Jesus is a social revolutionary, an advocate of critical theory, who stands up for the oppressed against the oppressor. So in all three quests, critics have looked into the well of history and have seen their own reflection. There's a scholar called Powell, I think, and he put it well. He said, It is impossible to avoid the suspicion that historical Jesus research is a very safe place to do autobiography and call it biography.
0: (laughs) That's very good. (laughs) We started this discussion by thinking about the Jesus Seminary and their view that less than 20% of the words of Jesus are actually authentic. Do their views correspond with the third quest, then?
1: No, and this is important, they don't. The Jesus Seminary occupies what we might call the lunatic fringe of the scholarly world. Uh, The interesting thing about the third quest is that it reinstates a lot of the Gospel writings. A lot of study into Jewish apocalyptic literature of the period has made even critical scholars optimistic that the synoptic Gospels are historically accurate. In fact, the only sections of the Gospels that are now consistently rejected by critical scholars are what you might call the Lord's more uh, spectacular miracles over nature, you know, things like the calming of the storm or walking on water. His direct claims to deity, and uh, those are mostly found in John's Gospels, uh, are also dismissed. Now, the crucial point here is that none of the scholars involved in the Third Quest are conservative or evangelical. That means all of them are critical. It does seem as if even critical
0: scholarship then has walked away from the idea that there's this huge gap between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. But for evangelical Christians like us, it can still feel really uncomfortable that there are scholars who find it easy to dismiss parts of scripture.
1: Yes. Um, For the past few minutes, we've been walking through a world that can seem threatening. Um, I feel enormous sympathy for young theology students in liberal seminaries, who are served up all this material. Uh, As we're going to see, conservative scholars have produced compelling critiques of these quests, critiques that blow them out of the water, to be honest. But liberal seminaries don't even stock the books written by conservative scholars. Uh, And I guess there's one obvious lesson to be drawn here. Don't go to a liberal seminary. It's like diving into a pool full of piranhas. Um... To change my animal metaphor, when the Lord talked of savage wolves who would arise to tear the flock, he was talking about people who, these days, walk through the cloisters of academia. It's an interesting thing, all of you know. The real opponents of Christianity are not the likes of Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett. The really dangerous people live in theology departments. On Sundays, some of them wear cassocks. I, I thank God for intelligent, godly men and women who engage with critical scholarship, but it takes real maturity and courage to stay faithful. So make sure you get a good grounding from top evangelical scholars before you venture into the piranha pool.
0: What are the main counter-arguments put forward by conservative scholars
1: against the quests for the historical Jesus? Okay, I'm going to suggest three reasons why we can safely set aside the quests for the historical Jesus. And the first is that the whole scheme is largely built on anti-supernaturalism. In other words, the possibility of a supernatural event is dismissed. It's ruled out uh, on principle. So the virgin birth, the resurrection, turning water into wine, these things are dismissed as myths from the outset, as presuppositions. Okay. So critical scholarship, although it clothes its prejudice and poison courtesy, is based on what scientists call methodological naturalism. Now look, people are free to adopt naturalism, I'm not... Uh, trying to stop that. But (laughs) Christianity is built on the idea that the supernatural exists. I mean, that is such an obvious statement, I, I don't really need to make it. But now think what happens when a biblical scholar rejects the idea of the supernatural. Imagine someone with that presupposition opening the Gospel of Mark. What is going to happen? By definition, he must interpret that document using nothing but psychology and politics. That's all he's got. So it is inevitable that a naturalist scholar will conclude that the miracle stories were myths invented by early Christians for political reasons. So the naturalist scholar's work has become entirely circular. Her premise is that there is no such thing as the supernatural. And her conclusion is that there is no such thing as the supernatural, only politics and psychology. Now, she's not doing anything illegal. It's just a really curious way to make a living. If I seriously thought that there was no such thing as the supernatural, and the last place I'd want to spend my life in is a theology department. I'd be better off, I don't know, designing bridges or winning elections. Anyway, that's the first critique. Critical scholarship is circular. Its presupposition that the supernatural doesn't exist leads inevitably to the conclusion that the New Testament documents are the product of nothing but politics and psychology. That whole approach leaves
0: a vacuum at the heart of Christianity. It's undeniable that Jesus and his apostles turned the world upside down, Something happened that led to the rise of Western civilization. If the Christ of faith is just an invented fiction, how can the revolutionary impact of Christianity be explained? The idea that the Gospels are largely myths invented by the early church for political purposes makes no sense for another reason. We know that the early church was divided over issues like circumcision, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, the use of charismatic gifts and the role of women in church life. In the myth model of the Gospels, it would have been so easy to slip in a few sayings of Jesus on those subjects, but
1: they aren't mentioned. That's very true. Uh, It's a very strong point. If the Gospels were produced for political reasons, then we should expect them to deal with the political pressures faced by the early church, but they don't. And that leaves the critical scholar high and dry. Her presupposition that the supernatural doesn't exist is exposed for all to see. Now, the second critique which conservative scholars make um, of the quest for the authentic Jesus, is about dating, the dates when the four Gospels were written. So critical scholars date Mark to some after AD 70, and then Matthew and Luke come along in the 80s and 90s, and John is placed at the end of the first century. Why do they date the Gospels so late? Yeah, well, for one overriding reason. Uh, and their dating flows directly from the conversation we've just had about their bias against supernaturalism. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord Jesus prophesies that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, that prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70. Aha! say the critics. That proves that the Gospels were written after the fall of Jerusalem and that the early church invented Jesus' prophecy to bolster his reputation as a prophet. Now, at the risk of sounding like a broken record... If you insist that there is no possibility that the supernatural exists, if that is an immovable presupposition, then why spend your life examining the biblical documents? You already know that they're just political tracts. So go build a bridge or something equally useful. You're a big fan of building bridges <laughs> by the sounds of it. Is it something you've, you'd consider doing on the side? Or? Well, I'm just trying to think of something practical and useful. <laughs> and I had the metaphor of an ugly ditch in my mind, so that's where it came from.
0: I love the bridge bridge. I love that bridge building is one of the first things that comes into your head. I just really appreciate that. Anyway, moving on. For those of us who accept that the Lord Jesus did actually prophesy the destruction of the temple in AD 70, what does that do
1: for the dating of the Gospels then? Well, the crucial piece of evidence here is found at the end of the book of Acts. Luke um, spends 10 chapters detailing Paul's various trials and imprisonments uh, at the end of Acts. But the book then ends abruptly. Uh, without the reader finding out the result of his trial before Caesar, now it is inconceivable that Luke would have omitted that information if he had known it. So it it it's very easy to conclude that Acts was written before A.D. sixty two. Now the Gospel of Luke was written before Acts, so we can date that uh, Gospel at about A.D. sixty. So Luke was written round about A.D. sixty.
0: We'll talk more about the links between the Gospels in next week's episode, but it's widely believed that Mark was the first gospel to be written. So conservative scholars date Mark
1: between AD 50 and AD 55. That's right. It seems very likely that Matthew had access to Mark's gospel, so we can date Matthew's work to somewhere between AD 55 and AD 60. John's gospel, of course, comes later, around about AD 90. Now, this really matters because when we date the synoptics to the 50s, there simply wouldn't have been enough time for the Christ of faith to be invented By the early church. So, the second big criticism of the quest for the authentic Jesus is that the Gospels were written too early for any mythology to have been invented. And remember that Paul's early letters are dated before the Gospels, and they contain early creeds and hymns. I mean, think of Philippians 2 or 1 Corinthians 11, and those creeds must have been in circulation just years after the crucifixion. Those early hymns and creeds contain all the Christology that the critical scholars say was invented in the 2nd century. So to put this in the language I used earlier, the first quest claimed that a great ugly ditch existed between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. But even an atheist would agree that there just wouldn't have been enough time uh, for such a ditch to have been dug. A really compelling case can be made that Matthew, Mark and Luke were all written within 30 years of Christ's death, and that is a short enough period for fact-checking to have occurred.
0: The Gospels themselves can make a credible claim to be based on eyewitness accounts. They contain detailed knowledge of first-century Palestine, take its geography, the names of towns, bodies of water, rivers, and and so on. There are hundreds of place names in the four Gospels, and they all fit with what we know from non-biblical history. The Gospel writers knew what roads were uphill and what roads were downhill. Then there are the names given to people. They all fit in with the names that were actually popular
1: at the exact time the events took place. It's very interesting to contrast all that evidence that you just put on the table uh, with the Jesus Seminary's favourite gospel, the so called Gospel of Thomas. Um, <laughs> the Gospel of Thomas uh, hasn't a single geographical detail in it, which isn't surprising because uh, most scholars now date it to around about AD 170. Um, it's also quite mad if you've ever read it, Ollie. Some, I mean, some people are taken with the idea that the early church suppressed the Gospel of Thomas, and I always recommend them to read the thing. I mean, it's a misogynistic, Gnostic tract. So
0: far, then, we've thought about two criticisms of the quest for the authentic Jesus. It's based on the presupposition that the supernatural does not exist, and it relies on the idea that the Gospels were written very late. But the truth is that the synoptic Gospels were written within 30 years of Jesus' death. So there simply would not have been time for the so-called ugly ditch he described between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith to be built. What's the final big criticism made of the quest then?
1: The final criticism is in many ways the most important. It focuses on the techniques which critical scholars use to deconstruct the Gospel records. I mean, think back to the Jesus Seminary's multicolored publication. On what basis did they decide to colour some of Jesus' sayings red, uh, some pink, grey or black? Uh, There are various techniques used, um, source criticism, redaction criticism and form criticism. And the most important technique for our purposes is called form criticism. And it relies on the idea of an oral tradition. Even conservative
0: scholars accept the validity of an oral tradition. In the years between the Lord's death and the writing of the Gospels, a great deal of Jesus' teaching was transmitted orally. In Jewish culture in those days, memory was a prized skill. Jewish rabbis could recite the entire Torah. So we don't dispute the idea of an oral tradition, do we?
1: No, but it is perhaps not as important as some people think. Uh, A lot of the Lord's teaching could have been written down while he was still on earth. Uh, People sometimes carried little wooden tablets that were covered with a thin layer of wax so they could jot down notes and then, you know, by melting the wax, reuse the tablet. So I'm not convinced that the oral tradition is as as important as some suppose it to be. Anyway, form criticism says that the Gospels are collections of little units, okay, little fragments of standalone sayings that people remembered without writing anything down. So think of phrases like, you know, turn the other cheek or love your enemies and so on. And form critics then divide these little literary units up And they categorize them by style. So there perhaps are parables, uh, miracle myths, as they would call them, and pithy one-liners. But now comes the crucial step. According to the form critic, the early church used these little fragments in order to win arguments and persuade people in their own life setting. So in evangelizing, they might tell a myth about Jesus walking on water to show his power. Or his disputes with the Jewish authorities might be used as an apologetic. So, according to form criticism, the Gospels don't give us a window into the life of Jesus. They give us a window into the life of the early church. Now, there are two obvious points to make about form criticism. First, it is wildly speculative. How do I decide whether one literary unit is genuine and another is an invention of the church? Well, says the form critic, we have a set of tests that we apply. First, we look to see if a saying appears in more than one Gospel. That's a mark in favour of authenticity. Then we see if the unit would have been embarrassing to the early church. We also give it high marks for authenticity if it is memorable or simple. And it gets top marks if the saying disagrees with the overall message of Matthew, Mark or Luke. Now here's the thing. All those criteria are so subjective and arbitrary, I'm amazed that any reputable scholar would put his name to such an analysis. So that's the first point. The second obvious point about form criticism is that it insults the intelligence of the biblical authors. Look, even if someone who rejects the idea that Scripture is inspired, even someone like that will quickly acknowledge that the biblical authors were intelligent. They were smart men who knew how to write literature. Every one of the Gospels has a sophisticated literary structure. Um, They each are history written for theological purpose. So it makes me a little angry when I see some modern-day nonentity reduce the biblical authors to second-rate editors motivated by the politics of his day. I mean, these documents change the world, Ollie. They contain the most profound ideas ever written, and it's the disrespect that galls me a bit. Yeah, man, no, I, th- I think that's fair enough, Jim. It's um, it-, it is
0: kind of depressing that people dedicate their lives to to undermining the Gospels.
1: I mean, imagine you saw an art critic standing in front of Van Gogh's you know, painting of wheat fields with cypress. And that's one of the most amazing pieces of art ever created. Um, and you hear the art critic scoff at the way the yellow colors and the green colors are lashed together. That dark blue is clearly inauthentic. You hear him mm. say, yeah, well, you'd throw the arrogant little critic <laughs> out of the museum. I'm going to stop my holiday. <laughs> I'm not being particularly gracious. Yeah, no, you, I, I, to be honest, Jim, I'm getting a little worried. You're, you're sort
0: of getting increasingly angry here. I think you know we maybe need to change the subject for a bit. <laughs> Let's talk about jazz, jazz
1: trumpets. Yes. <laughs> and bridge building. Yeah. Anyway, the, the point we should all leave with is, is really simple. The quest for the historical Jesus has been an exercise in futility. There is no gulf between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Those who have tried to dig that ugly ditch between the two have ended up creating a Jesus in their own image. They've looked down into the well of history and have seen their own reflection. The three quests have offered us Jesus as a 19th century liberal sage, a German existentialist, and a post-colonial social revolutionary. The quest has been futile. People who don't believe in the supernatural should not waste their lives in theology departments. They should go off and build bridges or write poetry, because it is senseless to invest your life in a circular argument that only reinforces your own presuppositions. The supernatural does exist. The gospel records were completed far too soon for the early church to invent anything, and the techniques used by form critics are risible. I am now going to lie down in a darkened room. <laughs>
0: Nay, no, thank you, Jim. That was fantastic. Really good to to hear how the Bible and the Gospels, in particular, hold up. To criticism. Tell us what we're going to be looking at next week.
1: Uh, next week we're going to uh, look at the question about the words of Jesus. Do the, do the gospel records tell us his exact words or just the gist of his words? The Latin terms are ipsissima verba or ipsissima vox okay fantastic
0: and as i mentioned at the start of this episode do get in touch with us uh, either via spotify the q a box on spotify or via our email address the equip at gmail.com or reach out to us on instagram we'd love to hear from you with any questions or suggestions for future episodes but thanks for listening and have a great week we'll see you again next time